another episode of Filter. On this show, we recognize the world can be a confusing place to live in. So what I seek to do on this show is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. Suffering causes us to ask hard questions about life. It also tests our faith as we question God's goodness or even existence and the reality of a deeply broken world. One of the most important factors in how we handle suffering is the story that we believe about the world and ourselves. The story belief will determine the answers to those hard questions. My guest on today's show argues for the Christian worldview as the story we need in order to understand the condition of life and to live well in the face of suffering. I'm glad to welcome back Mark Talbot to discuss the second volume in his series, Suffering in the Christian Life, titled, Give Me Understanding That I May Live, Situating Our Suffering Within God's Redemptive Plan. Mark Talbot grew up in the Seattle area. When he was 17, he fell off a Tarzan-like rope swing and suffered a paralyzing accident that left him partially paraplegic. After graduating from Seattle Pacific College with a BA in English Literature, he completed his PhD in Philosophy at the University of Pennsylvania. He began his teaching career as an assistant professor of philosophy at Calvin College in 1987 and then moved to Wheaton College in 1992, where he teaches courses on suffering, philosophical theology, philosophical psychology, David Hume, and Jonathan Edwards. Before we get into this episode, let me remind you that if you have not subscribed to our email list to do so, so that you can get all future episodes sent right into your inbox whenever they drop. Just visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on the homepage of wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been helped by this episode or one of our others, we'd greatly appreciate it if you left us a rating and review and shared this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and also write a review on Apple Podcasts. When you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Mark Talbot. Mark, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be with you, Aaron. Well, I'm really happy that you are back on. Uh, We had a great conversation last time. I really enjoyed it. I've loved your writing, and so, man, I'm just, uh, just I, I got excited the moment that we were able to set this up for us to be able to talk again, so I appreciate you making the time. I'm, I was really glad to do it. Yeah. Well, you've just released, um, or, or are releasing, the... It's out now. It's out now, okay. Yeah. Uh, the, the second volume in the series that you're working on uh, called um, Suffering and the Christian Life. And we talked about the first volume last time. That was several months ago now. So just go ahead. Let's get started by catch us up on what you're doing in this series, what the previous volume was briefly, and then introduce what you're doing in this second volume. Sure. The series is supposed to answer as well as we can biblically 
more or less all the sorts of questions that we might have about why we suffer in this life and why particularly Christians suffer in this life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from uh, Stories of Suffering in Scripture, was more or less first aid, Aaron. What it was supposed to do was to help people who were actually in the throes of suffering. In other words, where their orientation has been lost, uh, their stars have disappeared, to use the picture, the metaphor uh, that goes along with Paul being on the Mediterranean Sea mm -hmm. in Acts 27 and 28 and being on a ship that lost sight of the sun, moon, and stars for two weeks. People, when they're in deep suffering, find that they just don't know how to move forward. They can't yeah. figure out where they are and what to do. And so that book was meant to help people understand that Scripture takes their personal suffering seriously. Uh, my experience is that most of us as Christians uh, don't think that the Bible has much to say about suffering until finally, when we're suffering, we start to read it a bit differently. Yeah. And it, in fact, that first volume... Um, concentrated on the stories of Naomi and Job and Jeremiah in order to make clear just how deeply they suffered and then how God delivered them from their suffering. So it was first aid in that sense, and it was dealing with one of the two kinds of stories that we all have to have in order to get ourselves oriented in life, and that's a personal story, a story about where we come from, where we are now, where we're planning to go. This second volume is dealing with what I call the full Christian story, and it's a general story. What it comes to is that in addition to having needing to have a personal story, we have to have some general story. Because the general story is the story that tells us what human life means, what life is all about. And the Christian story is just this massively coherent story about what God has been doing in Christ from the creation of the world. Uh, it's it's a, a story that when one understands the whole thing, it just takes your breath away. It has four parts, creation, rebellion, redemption, and consummation. And we need to know all four of those parts. And unfortunately, very few Christians know that story in any detail. Yeah. Now, many of us are influenced by the main kind of secular story that there is in our time, which is the naturalistic scientific story, which says there's no God. All there is is causal process. We came about by chance. There will come a point when all the energy in the universe will run down. Nothing will be left over. Uh, there won't be um, any persons or anything like that. And so all of what is important to us will just uh, more or less dribble away, will drain out. I try to contrast those two stories. And I yep. try to show the strength of the Christian story and why we have reason to believe it's true. The third volume is going to deal with both scripture, with the way that God communicates with us, and providence. The fourth mm. volume, um, which is called All the Good That Is Ours in Christ, will deal with faith, hope, and love, and finally with what's called the eschaton, which means the state that we will be in with the resurrected Christ after he returns. Well, it's quite a project that you have on your hands with this series. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Mark, I remember... Though in my life, whenever I 
finally came to understand something that I think many, many, many Christians don't, which is that the Bible is telling us one big story. Yes. As you've put before, that has the, the four chapters. And we call this Christ, the Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. I, I think myself, like many other believers today, looked at the Bible as just um, not not disconnected, but just a lot of little stories and some, um, and you know maybe some that were easy to see how they fit in. A lot of others that you know, didn't really see how they fit, um, but it was just kind of you know one big mess, and it eventually makes its way around to Jesus, and that's what it's really kind of about. Um, but not <laughs> that's understanding a that good way to put it, Aaron. I like that, that way the, of putting it. It eventually makes its way around to Jesus. That's right. Yeah. That's the way we look at it. Yeah, and, and and you know, so all the other stories are there. You know, they're like little episodes that kind of teach us moral stories, uh, right. or moral lessons along the way until we get to what it's really about. Um, but then, whenever I came along to uh, and it was introduced to and learned about the Christian worldview and and that the Bible is telling us one big story, and everything else we're reading is, is chapters, um, yes. and stages in that one big story. It blew my mind, and it opened up a world of, um, you know, not just a world, not, not just a new intellectual world, but a new world for worship and for knowing yes. God. And yes. so we talk about the world, Christian worldview a lot on this show, but I think it's still worth time to time to just take a step back and explain it. And so since you've introduced that four-chapter story of what the Bible is telling us, just let, let's assume that one of our listeners has no clue what we're talking about. This is new for them. Explain what it means that the Bible is telling us one story that we call the Christian worldview. It's giving us one unified way to look at life. We are human agents. I kind of like the term agents. I've been playing with it a lot, Aaron, because I think that lots of us as Christians, since we aren't too quick to speak to others about our Christianity, are acting as if we're secret agents. We are not supposed to act that way. We are to be public agents, but we're agents. And what it means to be an agent means that we act in time. Given the sorts of creatures we are, that's the way it's got to go. And so, in fact, in order for us to do anything whatsoever, we have to frame it in terms of a story. In order for you and me to be talking right now, there's a story behind this. It's a story of your having uh, contacted me with my first book and saying I'd like to do an interview uh, are doing that interview when I finished the second book and it was coming out I thought I'd like Aaron to do another interview with me I contacted you then all of the little steps in between such as well what days can you do this what time can you do this um, what uh, where's the link that I have to have in order to get on your program and all of that that's all part of a story it's just the way that human beings live any human being who makes much of a life in the sense of making it to be something that is significant and that accomplishes something is working in terms of a story of that life. So if a student wants to become a physician and she decides that she wants to do that in junior high, she's got to start thinking about what steps do I need to take now in order to be able to get into a good college, once I've gotten a good college, to do well there, to be accepted to medical school, da-da-da-da-da-da. So stories are just central that way. Now what the big, full Christian story does is it tells us the story that God planned and is executing. 
And it's just this wonderful story about the way that a loving God has wanted, a loving Father has wanted to gather a bride for his son, Jesus Christ, Mm. who will worship him forever. One way to look at this is, with regard to any story, what is first in intention is last in execution. What is first in intention is last in execution. Hmm. So you and I intended to have this talk today, but this talk is last in execution. We had to do everything else first. I needed to contact you. We needed to figure out when we were going to do it and all those sorts of things. What we're told in Revelation 21 and 22 which are the final two chapters of Scripture, is what God's intention was. And it was, in fact, to gather, God the Father's intention was to gather for his son a bride who would worship him forever. That is what motivated God to do everything, including the initial creation, and allowing us to make the choices that our first parents made in sinning the way that they did, in such a way that we could only then ever be right with God again if his son uh, came to earth, if his son was incarnated and on earth uh, fulfilled his mission in such a way that if we put our faith in him, then our sins can be forgiven. He needed then to be resurrected uh, after his death and, and that is in fact the sign that the world is not just the naturalistic place that scientists think it is. It's just not the sort of place where all there are are causal laws that grind on forever and ever. Instead, what it is is a place where God is behind the causal regularities and where at the end of time he will break through them in order that those who have put their faith in his son may live in glory with him forever. Mm. That's so good. Yeah, and once again, you know, I think that if we don't have a picture of that big story that God is doing in Scripture, then we we miss out on what you said, the intention that was in God the Father's you know heart, if we can put it that way, yeah, that He had from uh, from before before time, beginning in the creation, fulfilled uh, to come in in, in His uh, in His kingdom, where it's fully established. And so you're using this story to guide us and to make sense of the suffering that we endure. Now, you talked about it before as, you know, fitting in our particular or individual stories into this big overarching story. So with that overview of what the story is, what are the crucial worldview points that guide us through suffering or that we uh, seek to connect to whenever we are examining it in in perspective with our own individual stories? The first is that uh, God created what's called ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. And what that means is that there wasn't any material that God worked on which could have in some way or another offered resistance to his will. Instead, he created simply by speaking, let there be light, Uh, let the earth be separated from the seas, so on and so forth. And so the creation story is about the way that God made things. Among the most important things that are said there, Aaron, is the fact that we are uh, in Genesis 1 at the apex of creation. 
uh, we are the reason God created this world. And um, we're told in Genesis 1.26 that before he created us, God thought uh, and said, um, um, let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so that they can rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all of the wild animals. The so that tells us what we were made for. And as soon as God made us, he blessed us. Verse 28, this, this is a wonderful thing. God made us. He didn't leave us to wonder what we were supposed to do. He immediately spoke to Adam and Eve because they are represented as having been created together in that first account. He immediately mm -hmm. spoke to them and he blessed them and he told them what their task was in ruling over everything. The first um, perspective on creation goes through verse 3 of chapter 2 of Genesis. There's a second perspective that goes from 2.4 to the end of the chapter, 2.25. Those perspectives are not in conflict. What they are doing is emphasizing different points. And the point that's emphasized in the second account is that we're no longer at the apex of creation, as we are in Psalm 8, Instead, now we are at the center of creation, and God is thinking primarily about us. And what we find, among other things, is that after he creates the first human person and puts him in a garden to tend it and keep it, he then says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. And then we find out that none of the creatures, the other creatures that God had created, could possibly uh, be this helper that were suited to him. And so God knocks the first person out, pulls some flesh and blood, some flesh and bone from his side. We usually hear rib, but in fact, we don't know what the word means. And I think it means both flesh and bone. Fashions a woman as Adam, we'll call him Adam, even though he isn't called this yet. Well, he is at the end of chapter two. But as Adam wakes up, God, as if he's the father of the bride, brings who, the woman that's going to be named Eve to Adam, and more or less says, name this. And what Adam says is, at last, she is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, which is a word for woman in Hebrew. She shall be called Isha because she's taken out of Ish one of the Hebrew words for man. And so he uh, immediately, Adam saw that she was the perfect prolongation of his being, that he was exactly what he needed. Now, when we get done with those creation accounts, rebellion is the next chapter in the story. And with regard to rebellion, it's got to do with the beginning of chapter three, where this strange um, occurrence happens of a serpent and of course, none of the other creatures that God created were speaking creatures. A serpent appears to Adam and Eve and speaks to Eve and questions whether or not God has told them that they can't eat from any tree in the garden. That's really the question. It's not, did he say that you can't? Uh, it, it isn't so much a question as it's, indeed, God has said that you can't eat from any tree in the garden. Eve immediately corrects him. And says, no, no, we can eat from all the trees in the garden except for the tree in the midst of the garden. Uh, from it we cannot eat in the, or even touch it. In the day that we eat it, we will die. 
uh, at that point, the serpent shows that he knew exactly what God had said, because he said, you will not certainly die. And Eve had left out the certainly that you find in the prohibition as God gave it to Adam in Genesis 2.17. So he's immediately contradicting God, and the doctrine he is denying is judgment. Well, Adam and Eve end up eating of the tree. They end up not remembering uh, how good God has been to them and the fact that he has made them and that they owe him everything. They end up eating from the tree and immediately are ashamed because they know that they have done what they should not do. They hide in the trees to get away from God. God, in love and with a redemptive purpose, um, uh, seeks them out and says, Adam, where are you? Adam says, I'm hiding here in the trees. And God said, why? Have you eaten of the tree that I told you not to eat? And Adam admits it. That's the beginning of everything going wrong. First of all, the man and the woman finding that they were no longer comfortable with each other. In verses 13, 14 through 19 of chapter 3 of Genesis, what we have are dooms that God pronounces first on the serpent, then on the woman, and then on the man. You remember that in verse 15 of chapter 3 that we're told we got what's called the protevangelium, which is, in other words, the first statement of what's going to be the gospel, mm -hmm. that, in fact, um, uh, uh, the woman will bear a son, not necessarily she directly, but one of her descendants. Some woman will bear a son who, in fact, will be such that the serpent will strike at the son's heel and the heel will crush the serpent's head. And, of course, that is the prediction that our Lord would come along, that our Lord would finally appear and that he would, in fact, um, vanquish evil, he would crush evil. But then we're told that for the woman she's going to suffer great pain in childbirth and that marriage is never going to be everything it can be. Uh, that it's always going to be a bit uncomfortable because there's always going to be this vying for interest between the man and his wife. And then we're told with the man that he's going to uh, find that um, uh, earning a living from the ground and working the ground is going to tire him out and it will tire him out in such a way that finally he will return to the dust. He will die and uh, will be dust as he was before God created him. Now, it isn't until then, Aaron, that we finally get to the place that we really can talk about suffering. And so I want at that point to define what suffering is or characterize it. Mm -hmm. My way of doing it is to say that we suffer whenever we experience something that is so unpleasant that we'd like it to end. We suffer whenever we experience something that is so unpleasant that we'd like it to end. And what I want that to do is to cover all the different kinds of suffering in life, such as even very small kinds of suffering, maybe getting a hangnail or something like that, through the most excruciating kinds of torture. It's supposed to cover the whole uh, range of suffering. And then what Scripture tells us is that suffering is going to be a regular part of human life until the eschaton, until the consummation. And it's going to be a regular part of human life even for God's people. 
So I take a chapter there dealing with suffering and what it is. And then I go back into the story with redemption and consummation. And I talk about what our Lord did by being incarnated. Since our first parents sinned in space and time, it was necessary for our Lord to become a man and to perform uh, his saving work in space and time. And of course, it's Romans 5, 12 through 19, which particularly deals with that. So mm -hmm. he lived in space and time a life of perfect obedience to his father. He did what Adam should have done but didn't. He lives a life of perfect obedience to his father. And at the end of that life, his last act of obedience is his willingness to die on a cross. Completely innocent and yet to suffer the fate uh, of uh, God's wrath being poured out on him in the way that all of us deserve. And in fact, in being willing to do that, he was our substitute. He stood in our place. Hmm. The disciples thinking that the Messiah, that they have understood something about uh, uh, through the Old Testament period, they're thinking that the Messiah can't possibly suffer. After he suffered that way, died on a tree, which we're told in Deuteronomy is to be cursed, mm -hmm. they lost all hope. They're hiding in a little upper room. And then Christ our Lord begins to appear to the two disciples on Emmaus, to uh, the, some women at the tomb, to John and to Peter at the tomb. We're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to uh, uh, up to 500 people at one time over a 40-day expanse of time. That was what convinced um, uh, the Lord's first apostles and disciples that uh, this man really was raised from the dead and it was worth their witnessing to him in the way that he commanded them to do in Matthew 28, go into all the world and preach the gospel, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He commanded them to do that. They became so sure that he had been resurrected that they were willing to be like lions in being willing to risk even their very lives. And in fact, to be joyful about suffering for Christ's name, they started to carry the message forward. That's the message we're supposed to carry forward. We now look toward the consummation because we believe in the resurrection. Romans 10, 9, if you believe, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, then you will be saved. Because we believe that, we are supposed to carry on their witness. That's our primary business now. The so that that we found in Genesis chapter 1, so that they can rule over, has in fact now been displaced to some degree by the Great Commission. And Christians are supposed to carry out the Great Commission. We become Christians so that we can preach the Great Commission and uh, um, by means of our preaching have God and the Holy Spirit touch the hearts of people so that they come to Christ so that they can be part of this bride that will meet Christ at the end of time and spend all of eternity with him in glory. Mm. I find your definition of suffering to be interesting. 
and because it encompasses, as you said, it encompasses a lot, yeah. a lot of different things that we could uh, place under that definition. And so it makes me wonder then how do we interpret the different types of suffering that we go through and particularly how we discern is with that definition is suffering something that should always be avoided at all costs. Uh, or particularly what I'm considering is, are there times that we voluntarily accept suffering? Yes, good question. Um, I actually, the, the closest biblical echo to the characterization of suffering I give is found in Hebrews chapter 12, uh, mm. where in fact we're told that God is going to chastise or discipline everyone who's his son or his daughter. Uh, that it's only the way that it used to be said in the King James ber version. It's only the bastards that he leaves alone. Only those who he doesn't recognize as his children. And uh, and we're told that um, uh, that people know because of athletic training that there are times to endure suffering for some greater good. And so that's where we get this picture of the fact that suffering is something we'd like. Uh, to avoid, but there are times that we know that we shouldn't. Now, the interesting thing is that we're told by our Lord that if he was persecuted, we're going to be persecuted, and that if we are not willing to identify with him in such a way that uh, we, in fact, will be persecuted, that he will not recognize us if we haven't recognized him. And so, interestingly enough, there's actually a pretty strong do I want to say threat? I, I don't know if that's quite the word I want to use, Aaron, but there's a really strong warning there that if we try to hide our Christian identity in order not to have people look down on us, which is a form of suffering, of course. If, if I say something as a Christian and somebody looks at me as if, what in the world is wrong with you? How could you believe that? That's psychological suffering. That's a kind of suffering. And quite often we mm -hmm. want to avoid that. And so we learn pretty quickly not to say things to people about what we believe is most important in our lives. We must be willing to suffer with Christ. And what we find in Philippians 1.29 is that Paul says it has been given to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And so suffering itself can be a gift. Hmm. And the original apostles felt that. You find it very clearly in Acts 5, when after they have been preaching in the temple court and they've been uh, taken in and thrown into jail and uh, uh, brought, as a tri uh, brought to tribunal before the Sanhedrin and warned that they mustn't speak in Jesus' name, and they say, well, we have to obey God rather than men with these things, they were flogged and then they were released. They came back to the rest of the Christian believers rejoicing that they were able to suffer for Christ's name. Mm -hmm. And so, in fact, suffering for Christ's name is one of the things that we are actually supposed to welcome in a, how do I want to say this? Not in a direct way. Suffering itself is never good. Um, but suffering for some greater good, such as suffering for Christ's name, yeah. 
um, can very much be welcomable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there's many times in life that God leads us into a time of suffering because he has a great redemptive work that he wants to do through it. Uh, or he, ha- he has a blessing that he wants to bring about through it. One of the things that comes to my mind, and it's not one that's a very, uh, not, not the most, you know, like spiritual example, I suppose, but the, the mother's voluntary acceptance of the pain of childbirth. Right. Uh, but she endures it for the sake right. of uh, the blessing that will come, which is the child. Um, yeah. And I, yeah, or you know, you could say, or, or, or parents who uh, endure through labor, uh, work labor, in, in a career right. that at times is feels like suffering and something they would rather get out of, but they do so for the blessing of their household. Uh, we can think of the soldiers who endure hardship for the sake of their their home and loved ones. Uh, I think the greatest example would be Jesus himself who voluntarily yes. accepted the cross. And so, um, yes, yeah, so that's what I was wondering about. Cause I think that, um, us Christians, especially us Americanized Christians who, uh, see pain and suffering as something that is to always be avoided at all costs, aren't necessarily thinking about it in the most biblical way. That's right. That's right. We need to think about it differently. And I, I really like your example for because a mother, as she's starting her labor pains, it isn't that this is fun stuff. It isn't that she wants to go through it. Uh, in one sense, this is um, just about the worst pain she can know, and yet she's willing to go through it for the gift at the end of it, mm-hmm. which is holding this new child in her arms. And I yeah. say to my students, I say, we are supposed to work hard every day. And if you don't think of being in college as being the equivalent of a job where you're supposed to be doing eight to ten hours of work every day, and if you're not tired at the end of the day, then you're not doing what you're supposed to do. And so we all know this both with regard to secular life, that we need to work steadily even when we don't want to, and in Christian life we have all the more reason. Think of Paul. Think of what he says about his suffering in 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. So far as I can see, Aaron, he suffered more than anyone else in the New Testament period other than our Lord. Our Lord's suffering was shorter, but of course was infinitely worse because it involved um, uh, God turning his wrath on his son. And so Jesus' suffering was something we can't even begin to understand, but of the kinds of suffering that a human being can go through, Paul went through the most. And yet, it was Paul who also um, uh, was the one who got the gospel started to so many parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think about uh, one of the stories that I always go to is Jeremiah 29, whenever the uh, Jews have just been exiled to Babylon. Yep. And they think that they're about to go back home because that's what the false prophets are telling them. Yep. And Jeremiah sends his letter with his, I always t- say, his good news and bad news letter. You know, yeah. good news, God says, I have a plan for you. Bad news, it's going to be a while. Yep, yep. <laughs> but it turns yep. out, but I find, but the most beautiful passage in there, which I think um, often kind of gets lost in how uh, that 
phrase has been maybe you know that that one Jeremiah twenty nine eleven has been really kind of pulled out of context and yes. twisted by some more uh, prosperity gospel type yep. preaching. So I think we really miss out on just the beauty and applicability of the story. They get that good news and bad news, but then he says, "But I have a role for you in your suffering." He's, I, you know, I'm going to leave you there. I sent you there. You're suffering because I have a plan. And he says, but if you accept my calling in your plan, which is to seek the well-being of the city, he says, you will thrive. And, yes. you know, that, uh, that phrase just hit me right in between the eyes several months ago. Mm. And I thought, mm. how incredible. In the midst of exile, he's saying to them, you can thrive. And once again, I think it just, I, we so often want to keep our lives as comfortable yep. you know, as possible. And we, so, so we often miss out on the things that God has for us when he's calling us to step out and take risks or, um, whenever we're going through times of difficulty, we, instead of leaning into it and asking God, you know, what's your invitation here for me? Yes. Understanding that he's not doing it because he's vindictive. Right. Instead, what's your calling on my life here? Instead, we just, we numb the pain with, um, you know, whether it be some type of vice, we ignore ourselves from it with Netflix and social media and so on. We, we numb it. We, we distract ourselves rather than taking what he said to the exiles of faith that even in the difficult times we go through, we can thrive. And one thing we need to think of is that for most of us, getting to the place that we understand Scripture is a kind of mild suffering because you mm. have to work at it. Yeah. And, uh, and yet working at it ultimately leads to this great gift that you have the sense of the way that God the Father, through God the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit, is speaking to each of us directly about what he would have for us and for all people. Mm. But, but as I say to my students, I try to teach them to read, and I tell them uh, when they come into intro class, I say, you know, I'm willing to bet my house on the fact you don't know how to read now. And occasionally I'll get a sneer. But at the yeah. end of the term, I don't think anybody doubts that they really didn't know how to take a relatively difficult text and make sense of it. I spent six months working through Jeremiah when I was writing the first book. Um, uh, chapter two of the first book stops where uh, Naomi and Job and Jeremiah are at their very lowest points. For mm -hmm. Jeremiah, that's chapter 20, after he's been tortured and he gets out of having been on the rack and more or less says to God, you deceived me, you've mistreated me, and he just would love to throw off his calling. With both uh, Naomi and Job, when they claim in the midst of their suffering that they'll never see good again, Naomi, of course, wants to be um, uh, have, a, have a permanent name change tomorrow, which means bitter. Yeah. Job says, my eye will never see good again. They both, by the end of their lives, have seen good again. Jeremiah, it never happens. And it's interesting that uh, chapter 29 comes after that fateful uh, time in chapter 20. Uh, there are two pastors. There's the one in 20 who tortured Jeremiah. There's a different one in 21. 
uh, and and uh, from 21 on, uh, even though the account is no longer uh, strictly chronological, from 21 on, uh, Jeremiah is exhibiting that he's faithful to God no matter what happens to him. And so mm. he can write that stuff in 29 because he knows it personally. Wow. It's his own experience. Wow. Yeah. So you've mentioned before how the Christian worldview is in conflict with the dominant worldview of our culture today, which is, we could give it several names, secularism, naturalism, materialism, summing it up as uh, an atheistic worldview. I think even if we didn't call it atheistic, uh, it's at least a worldview that's, that uh, believes in a closed system. There's many people yes. who might be open to the idea of there being somewhat of a higher power out there, but that if the higher power exists, he or it or whatever it is, is not intervening in our world right. with, with right. intention and so on. Right. So at the end of the day, atheistic as well, basically. Can you explain the, why these two worldviews are in conflict? I know it might seem common sense, but what specifically uh, makes these two worldviews in conflict? And what is the result of the conflict in terms of how these two different worldviews equip us to make sense of and face suffering? Right, right. Really good question. I talk about them in the book as the naturalistic worldview being a bottom-up worldview. In other words, everything um, uh, has come about because matter just knocking together randomly according to certain causal laws has produced everything we see, including human beings. And a top-down view, which is the view that there's a personal God who wants the world to be a particular way, wants people to be a certain way, designs and creates the world for that end. Now, I actually, in an epilogue, talk a lot about E.O. Wilson. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Human Existence. He was one of the great um, natural scientists of our time. His basic work was done with termites, I think it was, or in any case, it was with some small uh, social uh, insect. And uh, he grew up in a Christian home, but threw it off at some point and wants to say that there's just nothing about this world um, that suggests that uh, there is any ultimate meaning to it. And so he wants to say now human beings can make up the meaning for themselves. But here's the interesting thing, and this is picking up on one of the really important parts of your question. Human beings, in order to have to have hope, need to feel that the story that they're living has a chance of coming out right. And among the things that that means is that if people have done what they should, that they will get good. If they have done what they shouldn't, that they'll get bad. That's why almost all of the stories we still see on television, at the end, the bad guys get what they deserve, the good guys get what they deserve. None of that can be true on a naturalistic perspective. What's going to happen is that the world is just going to fritter out into useless energy. And so the naturalistic story, I want to say, is just a story fragment. It's just part of a story. It doesn't include creation 
because the idea is that matter has always existed. It's willing to admit that something's not quite right about human beings, um, but insofar as it would say there's any kind of redemption, it's going to be the redemption of science, and it's not going to be complete, and it's only going to last as long as matter still has any efficacy in the ways that it moves about. So the naturalistic story ultimately is not the kind of story that can satisfy a human being, and it can't give you hope. Mm. Christians, and this was certainly true of the first Christians, because they were so thoroughly convinced that Jesus had indeed bodily risen from the dead, because of that, they were willing to endure anything because they knew that their Lord had said to them, I'm coming back, and if you... Uh, stand up for me in this life, if you witness for me in this life, if you carry out the Great Commission of Matthew 28, then you will be with me in a glorified state forever. So, in fact, it's only the top-down story that really can offer us the hope that we need. It's kind of hard, Aaron, to understand why people who believe the naturalistic story don't more often than they do commit suicide. Because uh, you might think, well, gee, I'm going to face some suffering in this life no matter what. Um, but then why not end it right now? Because if there's nothing after this life, why not end it right now and not have to, do, have to suffer at all? I think it's actually part of the grace of God that people don't consider that more often than they do within yeah. the naturalistic framework. But it's only the Christian framework that gives them a reason to believe that... Uh, putting their faith in our Lord's work will mean that ultimately everything will be all right for them. Yeah. I think it just points to, um, like you said, I, that they're more willing to, at the end of the day, live with an incoherence in their worldview than to fully accept it to his logical end. It just points to the power of the persuasiveness and truth of the Christian worldview. That at the end of the day, no matter how much people argue and, and try to believe a different story, one which is nihilistic and so on, that they still find experiences of meaningfulness in life. Right. There's certain right. things that, that even if you reject the existence of God and the, and the truth of the, the scriptures, there's certain experiences that you know this just matters. One of those, like I, we mentioned before, is parenthood. Yep. Um, yep. You know, I, I think... If anyone experiences, you know, in the room experiences the moment of a birth of a child, there is something transcendent happening in that yeah. moment. It's it's unexplainable any other way. And yeah. uh, they, they experience joy and love, which um, enables them to continue living, accepting the incoherence. And that joy and love is something that makes them want to continue living because they understand deep within their heart that it's more powerful than just hits of dopamine. Yes. Once yes. again, yeah. they are, um, as Oz Guinness would say, signals of transcendence. Yeah, and, and they can only live inconsistently in order to have hopes and dreams make any sense at all. Um, yeah. uh, and only the Christian story finally pulls it all together. Yeah. I think what the story of atheism really misses in, in regards to uh being able to handle suffering well is a logos and a uh, and a telos. Yep. 
right? Yep. They, it misses a telos like you put before, which would be a, uh, a vision of a future hope to look forward mm-hmm. to in the midst of our suffering that, uh, right. that enables us to persevere, uh, gives us an assurance as we go through suffering. But then the logos, it uh, doesn't have a, a, a sense of purpose or meaningfulness, significance to help us to endure the sufferings that we go to. Because otherwise, if our lives don't really matter in the grand scheme of things, then what's the point with putting up with, with the various sufferings we endure in life? Language is tremendously important for people such as us who are not just captive to our environment and our instincts. Because without language, we don't get a framework of meaning within which we can then live. And that framework of meaning ultimately involves stories. It involves somebody having said to you at some point, I don't know when in your life, well, um, don't you want to go to college? Don't you want to get a seminary degree and so on and so forth and explaining to you why and you're saying yes and then doing those things. Mm. Without language, Jesus, the Word, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Without language, without God starting everything by speaking, nothing would make sense. Yeah. And so that's a good segue into my next question, which is in regards to God speaking. So in regards to God's revelation of himself and what he desires, what can we say about God's desire for us when we are enduring suffering? His desire is that we will endure it in a way that makes manifest why we endure it, that we are enduring it because of our faith in what his son has done, and in such a way that um, others might ask us, how is it? that in the midst of this awful thing, you still can have hope. Mm. Um, One of my colleagues had a daughter who was um, diagnosed with a neuroblastoma when she was in high school. At the time, there was no five-year survival rate for uh, anyone who was a teenager who had that neuroblastoma. She, from the beginning, had a sense of God's presence to her in the midst of that in such a way that at the very first Thanksgiving, after her diagnosis, when they were at a friend's house where they always would say what they were thankful for that year, she said she was thankful for what she was dealing with because it gave her a sense of God's presence. And at least for me, what I've found again and again is that no matter what kind of suffering I'm going through, and in a way, being in a wheelchair is the least of the things that I've dealt with, no matter what kind of suffering I'm going through, um, uh, God is there to to witness to me of his love for me. Hmm. Uh, Sometimes more clearly than others, Sometimes I'm only clear about that as I'm coming out of something that's awful, but he's always there. And uh, so we endure 
in order for us to gain the kind of character that Romans 5, 3 through 5 talks about that then has this hope and a hope that can't be put to shame that the Holy Spirit is witnessing in our hearts that to endure like this means that we will spend eternity with God in Christ. Yeah, it's beautiful. It makes me think of how one of the things that always touches me the most and whenever I'm going through a time of difficulty or whatever type it might be and what pulls me back from cynicism, you know, pulls me back from the edge is this thought that we serve the God who bleeds. And I think that uh, if we were to be talking to someone who wanted to understand the uniqueness of Christianity and the worthiness of Jesus to be adored and worshiped, we, if there's just one thing we could say, we could point to that, that find me any other God who bleeds for his people. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And so that's just what came to my mind with, with that answer and that, and that story and how, what a consolation that is to us. And that, uh, when we go through suffering and we know that, it, that he understands it and that he took it upon his own body to bring yes. the end to it which is that yes, hope that, that we look that forward he, to. That he suffered in a way that we never will, and so therefore any of our suffering is to him fully understandable. Yeah. Wow, well, we talked about some big things, some heavy things <laughs> in this conversation. Let's, let's just end with what do you hope uh, listeners to this episode, but also readers of this second volume, what do they hope that they take away from it? I'd hope that they want to know the full Christian story and its details because it's the it's the more you know that story and know its details that you find yourself convinced of the Christian truth. Um, uh, for for human beings, um, conviction comes out of coherence, and coherence comes out of lots of details being put to a story. Once we are sure that the Christian story is true because we really believe that our Lord was raised from the dead, the more details we can put to the full Christian story, the more we will find ourselves resting in the truth of it and willing to witness of it to others. That's great. Great point to end on as we come to the close of our conversation here today. Uh, I, I enjoyed it so much. Uh, I just want to thank you again for the work that you're doing and also for your willingness to join us here on the show. Um, because I've, even if it were just me, I've been greatly blessed by it. But I know that many others will be as well. And so just want to thank you for that. For those of you guys who are listening and you want to pick up a copy of, uh, of Mark's second volume in this series, I'm going to have it linked in the show notes along with the first book so you can pick up both if you don't have those yet. I highly recommend them. They are excellent, excellent books. So once again, go to the show notes and you can get those uh, books. I'll also have Mark's uh, bio and uh, ways to get in touch with them if you're wanting to reach out. So thank you once again, Mark, just so much for your time. Uh, and thanks for coming on Filter. Thank you, all, Aaron. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confusing world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, 
or leave a rating or review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, AaronChamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Aaron M. Champ. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Until then, hold fast.